0: Sonic
1: has something delicious for you Hey, announcer guy, that's your cue Try the new Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese Savory steak mixed with grilled onions topped with crispy bacon and melty American cheese plus creamy mayo and tangy barbecue sauce or try it spicy with zesty cheese sauce and jalapenos Well, I don't know about you but I'm definitely craving that previously mentioned thing Sonic Steak and Bacon Grilled Cheese Sonic Limited time only a participating Sonic drive-ins. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. DIY and How Studios presents <laughs> Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. We Music. Culture technology and rock and roll now on with the show hello diggers welcome to another edition of deeper digs in rock a production of rock and roll archaeology christian swain here i am the rock and roll archaeologist and i'm behind the mic at aftermaster studios in hollywood today in Deeper Digs, we go a little further, dig a little deeper into rock and roll music, culture, and technology. Interviews, special topics, field trips, and more. It's the companion show to the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, our episodic overview of rock history. All of our podcasts, and we have a nice little network going now, are available at, say it with me people, all together now, com. Podcasts, show notes, social media links, uh, come and get it. And you can support us via Patreon or uh, get you some cool Rock and Roll Archaeology swag. Shirts, caps, stickers, coffee mugs. Yes, folks, stop by and check it out. Finally, and this is the one that matters most to us. If you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology. Okay, thank you. Uh, Business handled. We are good. Time to start digging, gang. Another fine interview for you today. So let's do it. We're talking with Bob Lefsetz, author and publisher of the Lefsetz Letter. Uh, some of you may be asking, the what letter? Uh, but those in the know are either nodding with approval or ready to pull the fire alarm. <laughs> yes, the Lefsetz Letter is the OG of music industry blogs. It was a blog before there even were blogs, it goes back to 1986. First, it was a mailed-out subscription newsletter that went mostly to music business types. Uh, then in the 90s and early aughts, it was an email bulletin with about 10,000 subscribers. In 2005, the Lassette's letter went fully digital as a web blog. Uh, Bob is prolific. A dozen posts a week or more is not at all uncommon on this blog. But the thing we like about the Lefset's letter, well, we like a lot of things about it. We are regular readers, after all. What we like the best, Bob is fiercely independent. He's an iconoclast, a killer of sacred cows. More than a few times, he has shown a cheerful willingness to bite the hand that feeds him. As a thought leader and music industry observer, he gets it wrong sometimes, but he gets it right a lot more often. Ramble through the Set's letter archives and you will see he spotted trends and called things correctly years before they actually happened. This kind of agenda-setting insight and willingness to call it like he sees it is why the Lefset's letter is a must-read for music industry types and uh, for the devoted rock and roll fan. And as you shall see in a moment, uh, Bob is a bit of a raconteur. Uh, this was a really fun interview on our end. Uh, we had a great time getting to know him. Now it's your turn, so let's do it. Let's meet Mr. Bob Lefsetz, author of the Lefsets Letter. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Bob left sets
0: Great to be here in Hollywood on a what day is it? Thursday morning. Thursday, Thursday.
1: Yeah, yeah. You you live somewhere close. I well, think you're actually, West Side, right you in know, Santa yeah, Monica. Yeah, the,
0: the, the West Side. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's always nice to come into to town. And uh,
0: well, it's funny. I just saw a woman walking down the street with her, you know, pearl shoes. And her look on, I said, "This is like the 1970s all over again." I don't know what's going on.
1: You find it all here, right? Yeah, definitely find it all here. All right, so uh, let's let's start at the beginning. Let's get the Bob Leftsedge origin story, the superhero origin story. I think uh, uh, you're born in 1953. Yeah, you put it. Now
0: that that's on Wikipedia, I guess your age is out there. <laughs> yeah. But yes, I am born in 1953, yeah, yeah.
1: and you grew up in Connecticut, and right. uh, are thoroughly through and through a baby boomer.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I grew up in Fairfield, Connecticut, which is 50 miles from New York City. So you get uh, New York media, New York radio, New York television. Went to college in Vermont. I'm a big skier. Was a starving freestyle skier in Utah. And then went to law school in L.A. And here I am.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and we'll talk a little bit about that because I know you're still a big ski bum. Absolutely. Uh, In fact, I think that really was, you wanted to be, that. uh, that was your vocation in life.
0: Well, that and skiing, I said, you know... Okay, are we going to get into this? Yeah, I, you know, listen, I can ski on anything, but I need snow. Yeah. The last year I was in college happened to be a really bad year. Yeah. And uh, at the time, I either wanted to write for Rolling Stone or be a freestyle skier. And, I chose freestyle skiing first.
1: Right, right. And and now you've got to do both. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I'm cool. not complaining about right, it. Right, right. So tell us about uh, music discovery for you. Uh, as a youngster, uh, what was the first artist that really turned your world? Well, from-
0: I grew up in a household with a lot of music. My father played the violin poorly, and we listened to a lot of show tunes. That's the first music I remember. And then I certainly remember buying comedy records. So I remember getting the Martian Hop by the Randells. And then I immediately went to albums after that.
1: Uh, so 63 you said your uh, your mom was Oh yeah, uh, so the whatever. Jack Parr the, she, she Jack was leaving Parr, on Friday sorry.
0: night and she was saying you got to watch Jack Parr tonight. You know, my mother, I think Jack Parr was on at 10. She didn't care that we were up till 10. We weren't that old. Mm-hmm. And if you look it up, you know, all this stuff is resurfaced online because people never really believed this story when I told them. But Jack Parr had it must have been a kinescope if you want to really get technologically oriented but it's basically a video of the beatles performing shot from the back of the audience in a theater and they were playing she loves you in Although, the
1: UK, probably in the uk
0: right Right. oh, oh definitely in the yeah. uk oh. and we thought it was we love to yeah 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 okay and we laughed <laughs> we love to yeah okay. yeah okay yeah. oh there was so much screaming et <laughs> so that's the first time i saw the beatles and then of course Right after the beginning of the year in 1964, you immediately heard I Want to Hold Your Hand mm. on the radio. I remember hearing it the first time, saying, I don't really get it. By one day, everybody was a maniac.
1: Yeah, yeah. It changed music overnight. Uh, you know, I've interviewed some people like, for example, uh, uh, Zildjian Cymbals. Right. They, they, they said that uh, uh, within a week, their back order had gone from a few days to, uh, in the end, 15 years. Well,
0: it's funny. I, I worked at a summer camp years ago, and the Zildjian kids went there. That's a name. You oh, know yeah. It's yeah, be the in the... Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but in any event... Um, but people have to realize it was a really big change of what had come before. There had always been music. Yeah. Perry Colmo, oh, of course, Frank Sinatra. And the yeah. Four Seasons. I was a huge Four Seasons fan. But this was definitely a, a great leap forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why? Is it because
1: they took American music and then reinvented it uh, in a way
0: and, and sent it back over the ocean? First and foremost, they were believable. They were singing the songs. It sounded like it came straight from their hearts.
1: It did. That's a big four point. It's not a bunch of writers in the back room. Right. It's, you, it's all self-contained. But if you go
0: like to the Four Seasons, and I'm a huge Four Seasons fan, mm-hmm. you know they're singing, you know Ronnie and some of the ragdoll, But it always seemed like a third party. It didn't seem like it was literally happening right to them. Mm-hmm. Where. When you have the Beatles, like, all my loving, okay? And I remember on uh, Ed Sullivan, underneath it, it said, you know, when John was saying, sorry, girls, he's married. Mm-hmm. You know, all my loving, you know. Send it oh, home that's to right. You. They,
1: they, they posted that exactly. over on the screen, so, right?
0: And then, unlike with other things, and this is an interesting thing because it's happening again today, what is the release schedule? There was an endless tsunami of material, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. which we were not expecting or used to. And don't forget there was the Capitol meet the Beatles and there was VJ introducing the Beatles and then the second Beatles, second album. And then in July came hard days night, both the soundtrack and the album. I mean, you know, people, Randy Backman did a whole video about this, you know, the intro chord to hard days night. Yeah. So we immediately heard it. It's like, Wow! Yeah, and and it took decades for people to
1: figure that out. Uh, I know Randy did a show uh, specifically on breaking down that. He he met Giles uh, uh, serendipitously, ended up at Abbey Road, and uh, they kind of took the stems and took it apart and found uh, you know the key and that it was there was a lot going on. It's not just a D chord or something like that. So very interesting. So all right, so uh, I believe you went to uh, Middlebury College in. uh, in Vermont uh and again I as we said you're a big skier, and that was probably okay, well, there are the two case things there
0: i mean yes i wanted I worked hard I wanted to get into a good school. I could have gone to school at Columbia and, in New York City, and i didn't go primarily because there was a guy who wanted a room with me who i'd set on a i'd been on a summer program with, and I didn't want to do that. And I did want to go to Middlebury. It's a beautiful campus. You know, I went in the dark era, you know, when there was one snowy TV station there weren't yeah, DVDs, yeah, et cetera. Yeah. Today, no one is really – no place is really the hinterlands. No. But I'm in college in the 70s. It really is. Mm-hmm. And the college was co-ed. And had its own ski area. But this was a tumultuous time politically and economically uh, in the United States – And certainly growing up in the suburbs, I was exposed to that. But going to Middlebury College, you were really off the grid. And 45% of the people were prep school kids, which gave me a good education into their mindset but it was, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't go back. It was very conservative academically. I was known as the guy with all the records. I taught a course in rock music. Middlebury, they're now called J-Term, but when I went there, it was called the 414 system. There was one course you took intensively in January, and I taught a course on rock music. So, Oh, back it, in the 70s. Oh, absolutely. That yeah, really? was uh, January of 73. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe me, you know I was really into it.
1: Right, and still are today.
0: Uh, absolutely. Well, you know... We could talk specifically about today when we get there. (laughs) All right. So uh, I I believe art history is your major? Wow, you're really going deep. Yes, I was an art history major. I go really in deep on all these stories on why I was an art history major. No,
1: why were you an art history major?
0: I was an English major. I mean, people don't usually go to a college like Middlebury. They have no idea how rigid it is. Uh, There's no business. There's nothing practical whatsoever. You could take science courses. It's
1: all liberal arts. But
0: it's all liberal arts. And English and American literature are two different departments. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the English department, you're re- literally not reading books written in America. And I loved reading because I loved to give my own take on things. They didn't want to give you your own take. they didn't care about your own take. They wanted you to get the classical take, which is not i was, I wasn't interested in that at all. And these friends said, "You got to take art history. The teacher's great. Talks about ice cream shops." And it was, and I evolved. It was much more my mindset,
1: M- more rebellious, perhaps. Yeah, you know,
0: there could be rebellion at <laughs> yeah. Middlebury. I was certainly a, <laughs> a, a rebellious person and got in. I don't know if I want to call it trouble, but was noted for that, and there were some consequences. But yes, I was an art history major.
1: Okay, so who's your favorite painter?
0: Wow, you know, uh, my two favorite eras. Are early Netherland I can't believe you are asking us early Netherlandish painting and modern abstract stuff. Although if I could only own one painting, it would be Demoiselles d'Avignon, the Picasso one where it looks like the women are standing with masks before they redecorated MoMA Museum of Modern Art. You go in and it would be at the end of the hall. Okay, this was the really the turning point in and this is MoMA in New, York, in New York City. Yeah. And now when you I was in the museum not that long ago couple of months ago in uh july and i don't know when this will be air july of 2018 and it is still there but people want to see like you know starry starry night but demoiselles d'avignon people have to know about art because they'll see a lot of major you know modern art and they'll say i could do that but yes could you have the conception this is the same thing let's go to the ramones okay So people might say the Romans have a good rep now. They did not have a good rep then. People say, "Hey, they couldn't play whatever." They came up with the idea. Nobody else had the idea. So uh, the protractor series uh, in modern art. There's a lot of stuff, and especially you know, you'll see minimalism. You say, "I could do that," yeah, but you didn't have the idea. Okay.
1: I think you've uh, proved your bona fides here. Uh, Uh, So you still love it. You still love the... uh, Don't
0: push me to... No, (laughs) I believe... Listen, when art stimulates and sets you free, that's what I'm into. It could be a, a TV show. Yeah. It could be a movie. It could be a record. It could be a work of art. But we live in an era where everyone's focused on business and science. Those are valuable elements of society, but they don't touch you in the same way.
1: Agreed, and uh, maybe we've uh, stepped too far away from the garden, basically.
0: Well, I think the whole society is very coarse. I have a whole theory about this. I believe it's about income inequality. In the 60s and 70s, uh, no one ever wanted their child to be a musician. That was always seen as a rough thing. But if you went to public school, and I went to public school in the suburbs, there were always the art kids, Mm -hmm. okay? Could be the most beautiful girl in the school, but they know that she was an outsider and the guys, too. It could be the most handsome guy, etc. And they were known as being different. Those were the ones who became musicians. The head of the football team, the cheerleader, they were never musicians. Mm. So you would say, Hey, I knew that person. Like someone from my town became a studio bass player. Well. I won't mention his name but you know he was arrested for drugs in high school he was out playing late these were not your average person in school and when they made it they had middle class values the example i always use is jefferson airplane you know from the volunteers album they said up against the wall motherfucker mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. today Since life is so hard, if you have the ability to go to college, et cetera, you want to establish a nest egg. You want to establish a base. You don't want to. I used to get email 10 years ago from people saying, Well, I'm graduating from college. I'm going to try this music thing for a couple of years before I go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. I don't even get that anymore. OK? So, generally speaking, if you're on the education track, you're not taking a risk because the odds are too long. So, the lower classes are the ones making music today with a different background. They're saying they will do whatever they're told to do, where the middle-class person will say no. So music today is all about sponsorship and, you know, maybe to a degree ripping off the man, but it's not about speaking truth to power like it was in the 60s and 70s.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, uh, you know, I think a big shift is political. I mean, you are at the end of a liberal cycle, um, you know, probably began in 1933. And by the time you uh, get Nixon, you start to shift to a more conservative cycle. Certainly after Reagan, it is all. Well, a it's hard to cycle. watch.
0: I mean, having lived through the era uh, it is, where, where you went it? to college and you literally could point out every Republican in college and everybody who was a music <laughs> fan was a liberal. If you go to Reagan, he legitimized greed. And then, I mean, the fact that we could have, you know, uh, what, Christie, who was uh, governor of New Jersey, big Springsteen fan, yeah. it's yeah. just antithetical. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's obviously not paying that much attention to the lyrics.
0: Right, but <laughs> uh, you know, it's a sad state of affairs.
1: So you're also a lawyer. Yes, I am. And uh, But uh, like you said, I I think the plan was to be a ski bum.
0: No, 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 no. I was not going to be a skier forever. And what happens when you are living in it... I was in Salt Lake City, which is a very weird place to be a ski bum because you live in Salt Lake, which is a city, Mm -hmm. and you drive up Up to the the mountains. mountains. As opposed to being in Vermont and almost every other ski area in America, you're living in the country. Mm -hmm. But um, without going deeper into how weird that is... You wake up one day and you say, if I don't leave now, I'm going to be here forever. And you would see people who moved to uh, ski at Snowbird, which Snowbird and Alta had the most difficult right. skiing in Utah. Um, and suddenly they were working for the phone company. I say, well, that's not going to be me. And my father always wanted me to go to law school. I had signed up for the LSAT when I was in college. And my friends knocked on the door and they said, you're not going to take that test. And I said, you're right. And we—I can't believe it. I'm telling this story. And I went. We went to Montreal overnight, and we went to see "Bang the Drum Slowly." Isn't that the Robert De Niro movie? Uh-huh. And but then I broke my leg in a freak accident before the ski season began. I took the LSAT, still wasn't a go. And the next year, I got the world's worst case of mononucleosis. And my father said he would pay, so I went. And. My theory was in the time a lot of the record companies were run by attorneys that True. is not that is not the case now yeah it was and a
1: shift from the old record men to the attorneys. In the exactly. 70s. And
0: I, my father was a real estate appraiser, so I certainly had no connections. So I saw that as maybe as a way in. Mm-hmm. I went to law school. I hated it, but a couple of things happened. One, I fell in with a woman.
1: And that was Southwest. Yeah, Southwestern
0: right, in right. Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And then two, it was until a couple of years ago, It's literally the worst year in the history of snow in Utah, 76, 77. I used to say people could look it up. They never believed me, but since we had a bad year <laughs> the other year, they now, they say yes. And I I would call my friends Said, don't come. I was going to go for Christmas. Don't come. There's no snow. So I was involved with this woman. and carried me through law school. And certainly going to law school, I was going to take the bar. When you take the bar in California, it takes like five or six months to get your results. In the interim, I got a job working for an attorney. And then I did pass the bar. And very shortly thereafter... I stopped practicing law, but then he called me back and I practiced some law some more. So, I mean, I could practice law tomorrow, but that's not something I've done for decades.
1: So let's get into the music. Business okay. because uh you know as you said uh, lawyers are taking over the uh, the record industry in the in the seventies uh and I think you have said that back then in the nineteen seventies it was virtually impossible to get into the music business like well, people I mean. people, people who worked at Tower Records you were in the music a job business job at
0: Tower Records yeah, yeah, yeah. that's what cracks me up people say, oh they don't understand that's like joining the Yankees <laughs>
1: yeah 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 so how did you crack into the music business
0: oh God it's a long story I mean. You know, some of these lessons still apply. If you come from outside Los Angeles, you have to be here for about two years to find out who's full of shit and who's not. We yeah, can, we can yeah, swear here, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Um, everyone in Los Angeles has a good story. In addition, I mean, I use this example: all the, the land of hope
1: and dreams, man. Fruits you know, and nuts. And make like, it up.
0: You know, if let's assume you you broke your leg, and you wouldn't. If your friend said, you know, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos. Don't go to the doctor. You know, I can set your leg. You go, you're nuts, okay? But there's no criterion that makes you qualified for the music business. Ironically, and I know I'm going to piss people off here, those people who go to music business school are usually the least qualified. They're not the least qualified, but they're not qualified. If you know the people to this day running the music business, they're big risk-takers. They're larger-than-life personalities. Yeah. It's got to do with their personality. They would probably be successful at anything they did. Mm-hmm. But in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of money in music relative to other things and a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was the land That seemed
1: attractive to you, and obviously, no, no, with their no, no, back, no. I mean, uh, background records. What people don't records.
0: understand today, unless they're of our vintage is music drove the culture in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Everybody who's a baby will remember getting their first transistor radio. Mm -hmm. And you put it under your pillow, and you had the 9-volt battery and to check whether it was still valid. You put your tongue up against the end. And at first, if you were a guy, you were listening to the baseball games. But then you would literally put the transistor next to your blotter while you did your homework. You would listen to the countdown. Everything was about music. Now, in addition to music testing limits, you also have to think there were not many other options. I mean, I grew up in the New York media market, so we had three network television stations and three independents. The only place they had more was in Los Angeles. We had four independents. Mm-hmm. But music was the heartbeat of the youth culture. Yep. And in 1967 in uh, New York, when we had WOR-FM, because of the change in law, they couldn't broadcast on the FM what they did on the AM, and we suddenly had what was labeled underground FM radio. That was just incredible. It was the heartbeat. Even into the 70s, we had the big radio stations, which were codified in playlist by Lee Abrams, a big right. consultant, yep. but they would have their own news you really felt like if you wanted to touch in with your age group, you wanted to listen to the radio. Mm-hmm. Where now, if you talk to people under the age of 20, none of them listen to the radio.
1: No. So well, here's a question then. I mean, what do you think the future is of radio? I know you have an XM I mean, series. You know, we
0: live in an era of cacophony. There's so many messages. Yes. And it's hard to get your message across. In addition, even looking at politics, everybody's working the rest 24-7. So whenever I write anything negative about radio, which I do on a regular basis, I hear from everybody in radio. I'm talking about terrestrial radio. Mm-hmm. Satellite radios, and you know, radio that's generated by Pandora and Apple Music and uh, Spotify. Spotify. I'm talking about the automatic generation, not Beats 1, which I think is a joke. Those are different things. Mm-hmm. So whenever I write about radio, they immediately say, oh, no, you're wrong, and they whip out statistics. And then whenever I'm speaking, I always ask, Anybody here, they all have children. Any of your children under the age of 20 listen to the radio? Crickets! None. Nope. So what do we know? We live in an on-demand culture. That's the way it is. Radio is not on demand. Theoretically, if someone created story radio or music were part of it, maybe there's a possibility there. But the concept of having the jive DJ playing the usual songs, hey, you're left-handed, shows your creativity, <laughs> seeing him right here. Uh that's history.
1: So story radio, what do you mean by that? Like, what, which radio? Uh, well, you said if
0: somebody can create stories and music. You I mean, I, I, I know, listen, it's all about uh, ideas are a dime a dozen. The exam- but execution is everything. The example course, I use yeah, on this a, is Firesign the, yeah, Theater. The
1: perspiration is right. uh, the real fire
0: work, sign yeah. Theater, we used to sit and listen to yeah. those records. Uh-huh. They'd be an album long, and we would stay there. Could someone create a radio show with music? Yes, but music... Would probably not be the driving factor. On some level, it's what we're doing here now. We're talking about music. Yeah. Okay. So is that a possibility? Yes. I don't think. Th- I don't think that's the future of exposing people to new tunes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So
1: back to the music industry, as we as we discussed, it's virtually impossible to get into it into the seventies. Okay. So, but you do.
0: Okay. So um, I certainly, while I was in law school, I would take courses at UCLA Extension. You know, I'm gonna, I will be honest. I didn't tend to learn anything, but I would meet like-minded people. That's one of the great things. I mean, I went to College in Vermont. I was the outcast. I came to L.A. I knew all these people who went to UCLA. They were just like me, yeah. living for the records, etc. So I would go to a million shows. Uh, and I went to work. I got a job waiting for my bar results for an attorney who represented some people who worked on a very big act. And there were huge publishing issues. And I worked on that. Not that I really wanted to do that. And then I would negotiate for uh, songs to be in movies. And then I tried to be a manager. That's when I quit being a, uh, this is not long after I passed the bar. And I starved. Mm. Once again, it takes a long time to figure out how the world really works. As much as I knew, it's like people say, I know about records. I could be, I could work in the music business. Forget it. You have to fill a role that's needed. Or if you know that much, get a, find a talented act. If you can find that act, the doors are open to you.
1: Then, then so, that, that would be the, the way to do it.
0: Right. Uh, so in any event, um, rushing through this story, I went back to work for the attorney. He'd gotten a very big movie client, was working there. I would be doing the music work my, primarily mm-hmm. for on that particular thing, although some of just the movie deals. And then my sister had gone to college with someone who was the one of the initial bookers on Entertainment Tonight. For so those you know, they have all these shows, they have talent bookers, yeah. a range of guests. Yeah, yeah. And she introduced me to the guy who did the music booking. And he introduced me to this movie producer who was going to start a movie video a music video cassette company. I went to work for this guy Charles Band. We had a lot of divisions. You know, we sold uh, horror video games. We sold horror DVD at uh, that time, video cassettes. And he made a lot of movies. And we put this band Wasp in one of our movies. I maintained a relationship with Wasp. And then I went to work for Sanctuary Music, which managed Wasp and Iron Maiden.
1: And that didn't last too long.
0: Well, I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm still pissed at this guy. Blackie who, Lawless? Uh, this guy in Wired. You know, I resisted oh. doing an interview for uh, months, years actually. And then he says, I, I said, let's do it in your uh, hotel room. And he said, no, no, you won't be good. I said, believe me, I'll be good in your hotel room. You won't be good. People go. I said, well, let's go to lunch. because I have a credit card. Where do you want to go? Anywhere you want to go. And I said, well, why don't we go to the hotel room? And then if I'm not good, we'll go to the lunch. No, no, where do you want to go? I said, well, let's go to the Four Seasons for Sunday lunch. Brunch. So he writes in the article, left sets, uh, you know. Demands we went where he Four wants Seasons. To go. like, come on. <laughs> and then he asked, you know, the story with Sanctuary Music There's so many details. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a few of them. Mm -hmm. Under the law, you can only be in the United States for a certain number of days without paying tax. Mm -hmm. Okay, So the two guys who ran the company, they could only be in America a certain amount. I was the heavy. Okay, I had to negotiate. I'll give you a good example. Wasp, we were going to make a video, and we had a huge advance, and I had control of that advance. And we needed a $15,000 payment from Capital Records, which they were contractually obligated to do. And I called for the payment, and they say, We only write checks on Thursday. And I said, You know, I'm filming, on this is true, we're filming on Wednesday. And you check, No, we only write checks on, on Thursday. I said, so I got a hold of Rod Smallwood, who's still the manager of Iron Maiden. And I said, you know, what do you want me to do here? He goes, well, that's why I hired you. You know, go in there. Don't so figure I it had out, to right. tell this guy, Gary Culpepper, was the attorney. I had to say, listen, either you write me the $15,000 check or I got to shut the video down and I'm going to bill you for the $10,000 i am in. And of course I got the check. Mm-hmm. To get very specific, Blackie Lawless and the band Wasp They wanted to produce themselves. Blackie Wallace wanted to produce it. But Capitol Records said no. So they got this guy, Mike Varney, who'd found all the flash guitars to produce the record. The record came in mixed, and it was terrible. Okay? So I had to tell Blackie, I think we need to change, and people have no idea. They see the surface story of what's going on. I think we need to get this remixed. So he goes, I'll only remix it if Carter says to remix it. John Carter was an A&R guy, most famous shortly thereafter by producing the Tina Turner comeback record. And so I set up a meeting with Carter, and I played him the track. And he goes, I passed on this band three times. They were signed over me, do whatever you want. Now I'm freaked out. I'm back in my office, which was in a house on uh, Weatherly above the Rainbow, which uh, well, in any event, and I had the I ran there, and um, Blackie had played it for a few other people, and he brought me some Mrs. Fields cookies. Said, you know, we'll remix it. I got this guy Dwayne Barron, who had just had a huge hit with Quiet Riot, to mm-hmm. remix it. Mm-hmm. You also have to understand, bands had huge plans then. Okay. Blackie wanted to use a song. It was a hard-driving metal track. And if you were alive during the uh, MTV era, they would change philosophy now and again. We're playing hard music. We're not playing hard music, whatever. really? Oh, absolutely. And Dwayne had done a miraculous job uh, making another track stand out called Love Machine. Okay? I Want to Be Somebody was the track that Blackie had in mind. Mm -hmm. I argued... For Love Machine, mm-hmm. okay? Because I said they changed the philosophy and MTV will go on this and etc. We have a good video. Oh, okay, makes sense. And um, then Rod called me and it, I was fighting for the good of the album. And he said, what difference if it does it make if the first album only sells 50,000 copies? Which is the exact opposite of me. So standing up for artistic things, they fired me.
1: Yeah, so you're unemployed. And that gets us to the original lesson. Well, 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 you know, as
0: I say, the nature of those jobs, you can't spend a dollar because you're working around the clock. Yeah, yeah. So I had enough money to last me like a year and a half. Mm. And uh, I worked on a couple of movies. I, was, I had a big job. So you start to getting, you know, they saw you as like a big person. So getting another job was difficult. Yeah. And, yes, I started the newsletter in 1986.
1: So, uh, and I think you began with a uh, biweekly. Uh, yeah, newsletter. it came out. It came
0: out every other week. It was printed, and you paid for a subscription. And uh, oh, what did you charge? It was eighty nine dollars for one year, one hundred and sixty five dollars for two.
1: And you got three thousand subscriptions very quickly. Well,
0: I got everybody who was anybody subscribed. You did. I, I was I, the only person who canceled a subscription was Clive Davis, said something <laughs> that pissed him off. But the um. I was really writing it as an advertisement for myself to get another job uh-huh. and I had a target number that if I reached I would continue I did and I did continue
1: so uh, so it was kind of like a, a little like a, a cook report uh, sort of thing
0: that you know we, it was very much but I write much more frequently every story was an article I mean excuse me, every article had an angle mm-hmm. and it would be like tips I don't mean tips like what record would be going up the chart. But, how to uh increase your business you know signing acts all about the business itself
1: uh and then through that, you start consulting with the uh, Yeah, yeah the music, exactly with uh, other record labels, companies. absolutely yeah, so uh and what 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 kind of thing were they looking at was this is this in the 90s that you begin doing that it's the
0: 80s and 90s i didn't really do that much of it mm-hmm. and i could go into the specifics i don't think it's really that interesting but they would call you up and they would have ideas you know help us you know well, how what should we do on this record that record etc
1: now there's just a lot of change going on I mean, in the but music But business what you
0: realize time. is these record companies have priorities Okay. And they really only want to work the priorities and any angle you can get them to help those priorities. Right. At the time. Well,
1: it's no different than any other corporation. No, no,
0: no. But they have many more products and many more products fail.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So if you go
0: in there and you say, well, you gave me 15 CDs and this one I really love, we should do something with this. They go, That's not a priority. Mm-hmm.
1: So this is the the height of the music uh, industry as far as sales is concerned. I yeah, mean, yeah, really was. Was a good time
0: for me emotionally yeah. and financially, but it was the height. You're right. <laughs>
1: you know, you have MTV still playing videos at right, that time. Right, although
0: MTV. I mean, you know, in the early '90s, you get the beginning of the indie era. By the then, but the MTV videos are slick by then. But there's all kinds of acts being very successful. Mm. So
1: do you do you, do you think that uh, grunge was the last big movement in rock?
0: Were we shifting gears to a discussion of whether rock is dead and where rock is at? Yeah, maybe. Um, for those of us who've been around, the fascinating thing was every three years we would have a new sound. That's right. So grunge killed hair band music, yep. mm-hmm. and then one could argue that hip-hop killed grunge. Mm-hmm. But hip-hop has now gotten you know a 20-year run. Yeah, There's nothing inherently wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But we were used, and the other thing was, if you go back to the 60s, you know, a big hit would have maybe six weeks on the chart, where now records can be on the chart for a
1: year. Oh, it's so ephemeral. I
0: mean, if you are a um, an unknown act, it can take you a year for your track to be on the radio, so to speak. Right. Where if your hit act can go immediately, uh, it's much less fluid than it used to be. So do I believe rock is dead? Yes. Uh, let's go back. For those of us who live through the era of classic rock, uh, a, I You know, There will always be music. There of course. There will always be music well, to listen to. Yeah. But when people, especially boomers, say, oh, you just don't get the young music or whatever, that's usually self-satisfying. That's, you know, the same people get plastic surgery and want to hang and look with the young people. There was one renaissance in painting and sculpture. They've painted and sculptor, sculpted for 500 years thereafter. Right. Okay? Right. But— there was only one renaissance. There was only one classic rock period. Mm. There was supposed to be a new Beatles forever. There was never a new Beatles. Never happened. Okay. Right. So people have to accept there that- There were bands or artists that ruled the, right. you know, a that period it, of time. It, but... it could come back, mm-hmm. but there was a confluence of factors mm-hmm. that made it so big back then. Mm-hmm. So if you go to rock, and rock specifically, we ha- it evolved, as I say, from the two-minute single- to the album side, FM radio, to classic, uh, to corporate rock, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. Then we had punk and New Wave that tore it all down. Then we had grunge. Mm-hmm. Now everything is too self-referential. You have to have a decoder ring to understand this. Uh, I'll give you a good example. When Led Zeppelin came out, Led Zeppelin was considered heavy metal. Yeah. Okay? Uh-huh. And Black Sabbath was the end. You put on today what people consider to be metal, unless they've listened to all the iterations for decades, they can't understand it. Right. Okay. Metallica, the Beatles of metal at this point in time, Mm -hmm. that's much further down the line than Led Zeppelin or even Black Sabbath. Deep Purple. So they have an audience. I mean, all these acts have an audience. But it is a smaller part of the audience.
1: It, it's not a cultural driver. Uh, well, it's you a know. cultural
0: driver for the people who are listening. Yeah, but, but it's a, making much, a slightly it's different point. But, uh, if audience. you look at hip hop, okay, there's 50% of the audience will just never listen to hip hop, mm-hmm. categorically against it, not mm-hmm. a judgment of the quality. So who's the biggest act in the world today? Probably Adele, okay? Mm-hmm. She hasn't put out a record for a while, the last record wasn't as good, and it wasn't on streaming services, but let's use her as an example. So, what do we know? She doesn't whore herself out. I hate to use that term relative to a woman, but in the industry, it means is she won't take money from anybody. Right. She won't do sponsorships, etc. So, it's based on the music. What do we have? We have a woman with a phenomenal voice, yep. singing melody. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what <laughs> people want. I mean, if you go back to the album Twenty One, when it was that was her second of three albums, when uh, uh, I was out to dinner with Jason Flom and some other people, and he said, okay. That sold 10 million copies when everything else sold 1 million copy. Does that mean in the era of Kid Rock, et cetera, when we had diamond sellers of 10 sellers, 10 million sellers, would she have sold 100 million? No. So you have to ask whether it's a lost formula. We have to get back to the garden. If you go back to the Beatles, not only were they all good looking, they all had good voices. They all could play the songs. It's not a miracle. You have a verse, you have a chorus, you have a bridge. It's like... You know, it's like the Aztecs. We've lost the formula.
1: So it just needs to be rediscovered, is what you're saying.
0: I think if you rediscover it, well, if we go to the turn of the century, we have the Backstreet Boys. Max Martin is a genius, okay? He was the producer. He's from Sweden. Yeah. But if you listen to those records, some of the lyrics are vapid, okay? But if you listen to Backstreet Boys Millennium, they were so big. I'm not as big an Sync fan, but... Uh, you you can listen to those records forever cuz they got the elements of what this music was when everybody who was supposedly hip was going too far down the rabbit hole
1: so do you think that the the you know we 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 made the uh, the point that culturally there's a bit of a shift we we move from um from a dominating homogenous sound uh of the the 60s and 70s and maybe even into the 80s a little bit and then now a new sound uh, begins to rise from the urban streets, hip hop. Okay, uh, that then begins to change, and that shift seems to be in the 1990s, as we've just talked about. Okay, but there, there are also technological changes that are occurring here. So there's the cultural shift. So now the technological shifts. You have SoundScan that starts in 1991, I believe.
0: Oh, the SoundScan basically proved there was a huge demand for country music,
1: and then country music itself too comes in. Uh, and now instead of a you know a singular uh, monolithic culture. You begin to see these divisions and these breakouts that, uh, you know, one only listens to this and never would listen to the other. And it's gotten even more diverse, which in some ways is good, but it also has separated us uh, as a well, singular we culture as well. got get very
0: specific. You know, things really changed once the Internet Napster came along. Yeah, 1995
1: and 1997. So 1995, Windows 95 comes out. PC becomes ubiquitous, everybody's got one in the home, and I think Napster comes out in 97, right?
0: I think it's 99 is or 98, it's, but it's, actually. Yeah,
1: and that, that, that craters the music industry.
0: Yes, but talking artistically as opposed to economically, mm. okay, suddenly everything surfaces. If we go now at this late date of 2018, hip-hop dominates for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that hip-hop embraced the Internet. Yeah. Everybody's posting stuff at SoundCloud. Hmm. Whereas in the rock and pop world, especially the rock world, the internet was the enemy. Yes. The internet's ripping us off. Yeah. So yeah. To this day, people say yeah. Spotify's the enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, unless you get your audience on the streaming service, your records will never surface. If you follow the statistics, country has made huge inroads on Spotify and streaming services. It's rock that has been left out. All these artists. I mean, I can't believe at this late date I'm even saying you should be telling your your fans forget vinyl, which is like civil war reenactment. <laughs> sign up, sign up for the streaming service so that the people will see there's some action there and mm-hmm. things will happen.
1: So the record is really the advertisement for the act.
0: It is, as I say, a piece. but instead of you know record revenue, recording revenue is going back up. Yeah, instead I think, uh, of 15 instead of billion seeing it year. as a shift to touring income, I would see it as there's many more opportunities to monetize than there ever were before. So there's a lot of ways you can make money. and uh, it's good. I mean, it's so hard to get noticed. That's really the biggest problem, but the
1: other thing is, so there, it's, it's a sea of mediocrity uh, out there because yeah, ev- everybody's uh, got uh, you know GarageBand or Pro Tools or Logic or what have you. They've got their home studios, they build their uh, their product uh, in whatever genre it is, and then they can you know distribute it pretty easily, uh, just as good as anybody can.
0: I mean, you're speaking my language. If it's not great, we're not interested. And there's a lot of canards. In society, I mean, um, people say kids today have a short attention span. That is complete fucking horse shit. Yeah. Okay? Mm-hmm. Every year, somebody dies in Asia from playing video games like three days straight. <laughs> yeah. Look at kids. Kids watch Netflix marathons all days on Saturday or whatever. Bottom line is they have an incredible shit detector. Yeah. It's like people say, listen to my record five or six times. You get, what are you nuts? Yeah. I mean, no one's got that time. Yeah. You gotta catch me immediately. Musicians, they hate when I say this, musicians are the worst. They're the most out of touch. They hate that the paradigm died. What they want to do is they want to be rescued by the record company and kept alive by the record company. Okay, Not knowing that probably if it was a pre-internet era, they wouldn't even be able to get a record deal. Mm. Then you get the acts that used to get record deals. Even if they didn't get any radio play, they got a certain amount of press so they could get a career. Now they're bitching that they're not getting any money from Spotify. You can check the, st- the statistics are public on Spotify. Yeah. It's like, you can, no one's listening. You were propped up by the artificial situation. So hip-hop has embraced all the new game. The other thing hip hop, hip-hop does, if it doesn't work out, work. They put out a new track. Where the record, uh, the rock people say, well, you know, I labored for a couple of years. Oh, to to
1: to make an album. Right. I think we both agree the album is dead. Today, I have
0: a friend, Richard Griffiths, managed One Direction, used to run Epic, a lot of other things. He says, failure used to taint you. It doesn't taint you anymore. Okay, no one paid attention. Make another record. Yeah. Everyone is playing by the old rules to their detriment.
1: Mm. So what are the new rules?
0: New rules is you're going to fucking starve. OK, well, so that's the way back in the before day the, the bands
1: did the same thing
0: they used to be that if you caught fire, you could see your way up. OK, mm-hmm. now to reach a level of ubiquity, the only person who has any ubiquity in America is Trump. OK, so to get <laughs> everybody to notice you is if the hip hop world, you know, they're featured on each other's records and they lift each other up. Okay. So
1: everybody needs to become a bozo con
0: man. I would not go. That's trying to rig the market. And yeah. now at this point, the audience is very sophisticated when they're manipulated. So, but so well, let me just finish with Then I'll yeah. answer your question. My point is no, it used to be 10 years ago. If you did something great, people would find it online. Mm-hmm. Now there's so much information that even if you do something great, it won't be found. So, with that being the paradigm, the first incredible hurdle is doing something great. Most people can never do this. And
1: that takes time. It takes effort. And it takes if help. You, if it you, takes if you, money. If you do
0: something great, aligning yourself with the right people, getting noticed, that could take another 10 years. Wow. Wow.
1: That's... That doesn't play well for, you know, young people who make music and are attempting to, to, to make a make a
0: living, you know. Or, and, I don't give a shit about people making a living making music. Mm-hmm. Okay, people, no, you know, I don't believe people are entitled to make a living making music. And if you really want to make a living that badly, you can be a wedding band, although to a certain degree they have DJs now. There's a certain number of people who can play live. I lament the loss of clubs. I'm driving here, and driving past Club Lingerie. It didn't close because they wanted to. It closed because no one wanted to go anymore. True. Okay?
1: True, yeah. So. Supply and demand.
0: We have a limited number. Let's look at computers. There used to be, you know, a million brands of computers. How many brands are at this point in time? You know, Apple, Lenovo, uh, Acer, and HP, and that's basically it. Yeah. This is the nature of the game. Well, everything
1: consolidates over time.
0: The other thing about it, I mean. I was watching a movie last night, happened to be a ski movie, and they were talking about, okay, first this guy's a famous extreme skier, Scott Schmidt. How did he get in the movie, okay? They were at Squaw Valley, which is notorious for extreme skiing, and the photographers, the cinematographers for um, Warren Miller, was this big ski maker, mm-hmm. they heard about him, and they didn't give a shit. Finally they said, okay, we'll see what you do. And they went to this literally unskiable spot and the guy skied, okay? Still, he was starving. Then he goes to work a couple years later for this guy, Greg Stump, okay? Greg Stump makes a movie called uh, The Blizzard of Oz. As a result, he ends up on the Today Show. He is still starving, okay? This is the way it is. It takes years to get notoriety. Most people give up. I mean... Making it 50% is at most talent. You know, this is what I say all the time when I speak. My goal is to make people give up because if I, my life has been incredibly hard. I don't really, I don't need to advertise. I'm in a very good spot right now, but I had huge health concerns, which were magnified by having no money. I lived... I remember having $18 in my bank account, writing bad checks for my rent, which, thank God, they didn't cash for a while. Most people are not willing to sacrifice that much. I'm not using it as an advertisement. But if you're not willing to sacrifice, the other thing is you have to look at the signals. If the signals say no, give the fuck up. Okay?
1: (laughs) But but are, are the signals true today? Are the, you know, are the it's signals very, it's that you're getting simple. that, you, says, you that may, says... You make, oh, you make a
0: record. Chances are you'll play it for your friends and they say it's great. Yeah, Play for somebody you don't know. Well, they say it's great. They say it's great. You got That's something. That's a start. Okay. 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 Almost always they say no. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. But people don't like that. I mean, it's like that old damn movie. You can't handle the truth. Or people, people famous people that write books and they say, everybody men, yeah. told me it was great. Yeah, everybody you know said it was great. Yeah, yeah. But how about the people who are outside? Not that, of course... Everyone's never going to agree. Every day, people email me that I'm God and I'm a shithead simultaneously. Of course. But you have to feel like you're going in the right direction. If you're not getting those signals, change direction. It's like Sam Kittison said. So pivot,
1: pivot, pivot.
0: No, Sam Kittison said, you don't want to be like a techie and analyze, got to be an emotional thing. But Sam Kittison said, you know, When they were starving in Africa, stop sending food. Send them suitcases. (laughs) They got to (laughs) move.
1: All right. So let me switch gears here for a minute to also comment on technology and politics uh, and culture. Uh, So let me start with technology since um, that's a logical leap uh, from music. Uh, Were you a tinkerer as a
0: kid? Define that.
1: You know, were you interested in grabbing radios and tearing them apart? No, 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 no. I'm not Joe
0: Walsh with a ham radio. Absolutely not. Uh I do have a very good mechanical sense, and I like figuring things out, but I'm not that guy in the home workshop, no.
1: So what got you really interested in technology? Okay, well, you know,
0: starting my newsletter, I was reading Billboard, which goes up and down. It was in a bad point. This is 1986, and I read this. I go, this is terrible. Uh You know, I could do a better job. And I went home and woke up my girlfriend and I said, I have this idea to do this newsletter. She said, do it. Okay. Now to do it, you needed a computer. I famously said, and ironically, the era is here. Now I'm not going to get a computer until I can talk to it. Okay. <laughs> so I did the research. You would have,
1: you would have me- been waiting for uh, uh, been waiting 30 years.
0: <laughs> so, uh, although I did learn to type in high school, one of the, probably the best course I took in high school. Mm. So, I did a little research, and I'm a good researcher. Research, was, of course, was harder then because uh, there was no internet. And you needed an Apple Macintosh because they had this program, PageMaker. Oh, yeah, they that's not are- publishing. Okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So I bought the computer, uh, Macintosh Plus. It was so fascinating that it hooked me. Okay, And people have to know the computers are so good at this point, you really don't have to know how they work. But until they got to OS X and maybe By, Windows To me, 7, that's the
1: genius of jobs. Is right, right. They realize, you literally had to know. Yeah. yeah. And, oh, you had to. Yeah. And, and, at that time. You know,
0: even at this late date, you know, I'll read uh, Mac Life came the other day and they're giving the genius tips with Gmail. I know those things. Not because I'm a genius, but I've lived through 30 years worth of computer history. Mm-hmm. I know what to look for mm-hmm. and I know what to do. And I find it utterly fascinating. But we are at the end. From 1995, even though I started in 86, 1995 to two, uh, 2015 was the tech era. That era is done, okay? It's like the guys just left Instagram. You'll remember we were excited about new apps. There aren't any new apps anymore. Go to a festival, they'll give you an app, okay? So it's just like music. We have figured it out, music. If you don't agree with me, stop listening and giving up. give up because you don't get it. Distribution has been figured out. Now it's about content again. How do you get your content going? There's not some big technological breakthrough. People say, what's after Spotify? There's nothing after Spotify because it's on demand. As long as you can get it on demand. Mm -hmm. But there will continue to be technological breakthroughs, but they're not driving the country right now. So And that's sad because I'm very excited about it, mm-hmm. and I certainly still read about it. And We have 5G coming, and to what degree will 5G contribute to driverless cars, et cetera. But it is not. It's like reading about the Instagram leave, uh, fi- find founders leaving the other day. I got stimulated in a way that I didn't used to get stimulated in terms yes. of tech.
1: Oh, you, oh, because you, you, get excited, think, you think you they're going to oh, leave. Yeah, and- I
0: remember when you're trying to put the pieces together. I mean, at this point in time, it's more interesting putting the pieces together on politics. It's not so much the horse race or the battle, but what is really going on in America? You know, this is where music has lost its touch. Music can mobilize Americans, but music is seen as entertainment. And therefore, you know, unfortunately, television has more power than uh, music.
1: Uh, Today, because uh, that's where, you know, the... The best writers and producers and directors well, are going television.
0: Think about this the other night. Okay, and you about, and
1: you mean on demand about television? You well, mean like binge worthy? Uh, well, let's
0: talk all the all, de- all television. Mm-hmm. What the breakthrough was was Netflix. And yeah. Netflix didn't even know. Netflix got cold feet. Netflix used to mail the DVDs. Yeah. Said we're going to go to streaming. Mm-hmm. Then the public freaked out. The public was behind, and they went to streaming, which is essentially on demand. All these opportunities arising. And we're in the middle of a fight right now. You know, what's going to happen with Disney's on demand channels, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you can only pay
1: for so many exactly. on demand channels. Exactly. Sorry. And they don't
0: understand that. So it's very exciting. In addition. Unless, unless
1: everything's a la carte, I guess you could do well, that.
0: Well, I'll, I'll, we can Let's break this down. First, let's go content, okay? Everywhere you go, everybody wants to talk television. That's the way it was with music in the 60s and 70s. What are you watching? Is this good? Let me check it out, yeah. et cetera. You know, as Greg, uh, George Diculius, who who uh, is a record producer and is now a music supervisor, said, I used to fight about records. You don't fight about records anymore. Right. Okay. Distribution. The Nobody's great... that invested. Right. To, you know, to it's, when you talk right. about television, the great thing about this is the movie studios and the TV companies, they believe they're entitled. Oh, people won't steal our product. So it's hilarious. It's just like, you know, the record companies 15 years mm-hmm. ago. Yes. So it's a game of musical chairs, and not all will survive. Mm.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, let me bring up something that, uh, that you do say, and that the music industry was a canary in the coal mine for disruption. Absolutely. And, uh, and what you're saying now is that uh, the, the studios, the, the movie and television studios are, are, are kind of going through that themselves.
0: Absolutely. I mean, the other thing about it, although it's a public company, you know, Reed Hastings started Netflix. He's got an investment So many of these other people running mature corporations, they never really had a stake in the game. Mm -hmm. Okay? So everybody working in the music business with these big corporations now, it's when you get independent people with their own money at stake that you see the revolution. Mm
1: -hmm. All right, so uh, the... Letter the new left set's letter in went uh, digital in two thousand yes right uh, and now you can meet your meet uh, reach a much wider audience uh, it's not just industry types it's uh, the hoy paloy it's yeah, exactly. much like That's me for sure. so did the feedback dumb down at all or were you in a better position by touching closer to the ground
0: there's a lot of stuff there I had a free subscription to AOL in nineteen ninety one or ninety two from Warner Brothers Records. So when the revolution hit in 1995, I was online 24-7. I lost uh, at least five (laughs) years of my life because I didn't have to pay when they were charging by the minute. And I checked out all the nook and crannies. Um, It was an accident how I took my newsletter online in the year 2000 because I had this book, The Operator, written about David Geffen. A weekend before anybody else got it, some friends in the music business, in the book business. And I wrote about it and I sent it to my subscribers and I noticed a virality. There were a lot of things I was on the cutting edge of that everyone knows about just by being there, Mm. okay? Like internet hate. Now they have hate tweets on Kimmel. I used to go places, tell people they would not know what I'm talking about. So it used to be prior to the year 2005 you had to ask to be on my newsletter. Starting in 2005 to this day, you can sign up automatically. Uh, I don't move fast on change like this. Like everyone said, go to a blog format. And I said, no, I'm going to stay with email because a lot of my audience is really not technologically savvy, which was true. People, execs had their email printed out, et cetera. But then, of course, blogs went back to email. So, uh, and now email's king and there are too many email newsletters. But- I didn't go automatic till two thousand and five, which was good because I was ready to deal with the feedback at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, at this point in time, yes, I mean, I would put it in a positive way. If I write about anybody in the world, they read a, read it, and I get off on that.
1: Okay. Oh, I'm sure it's uh, never it's mind you be know, an ego stroke, you whether know, <laughs> well, good or bad.
0: <laughs> I mean, and there's all kinds of you know crazy things. You know, I write about Siggy's yogurt, and I hear from Siggy's. And people send me stuff, and that's cool. But that is a great thrill. Or do you want know, hear from Elton or any of these other famous musicians? Right. And I can tell story after story. But um, reaching a wider audience is, you know, we all. If you're, I'm first and foremost a writer. Pretty much everybody writing about the music business that is secondary to being in the music business. So, and I want my stuff to be first and foremost readable. OK, so the more people who read what I'm writing, the more rewarding it is.
1: Well, I, I read it as a gut check. It's, uh, you know, it's it's it, in fact, it, I, I, I so often find myself going, what? This just happened like three hours ago. Uh, and here you are with a with a quality. Well, take. You know,
0: um, I'm a big believer. You can overanalyze your position and lose it. Uh-huh. That doesn't mean I have, you know, things happen. And sometimes I'm not sure of my take. But if, but usually Listen, I'm I'm reading all day long, okay? I'm not the guy who's on the phone going to lunch, etc. So usually when this stuff happens, it's not out of the blue. I have a huge background in what's going on. I mean, like one of the things I did, I write an April Fools joke every year, and I talked about Apple buying Beats. I didn't pull that out of my ass. It all made sense, okay? And then it And happened. then they did. And then it happened in the <laughs> you know c- c- CNBC and all these people called me as a yeah, TV yeah. In Toronto, You Oracle you. Exactly. Right, right. But it wasn't because I was sitting at home, you know, these were things that made sense to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, being in the music business, you made a scuttle button rumor If you're looking
0: right now right. Yeah. at the landscape, the three major labels, their asset is their catalogs. Mm-hmm. They wield that to make deals. Their other big asset is relationships at radio. And as a result of the Spitzer decisions, very hard to get an independent record on major terrestrial radio, which is counterintuitive, but that's the way it is. So as we sit here and we see, okay, the power of terrestrial radio is fading. Power at television is fading, except for CBS Sunday morning. That allows independent people to play. We, of course, have Chance the Rapper, but you have to analyze many issues. The other thing the major labels have is they're in the business 24-7. If you are an artist and you just want to... Trent Reznor left uh, InterScope and then went ultimately back to Sony because... You need someone who's talking to everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. Could there be an individual who creates an enterprise that could compete with the major labels? Absolutely. Now, the best and the brightest don't want to go into the music business for two reasons. There's literally not enough money in it, okay? Mm -hmm. You know... You go in tech, although it's a very hard road, or you go into finance, which is not quite a hard road. You can make a ton of money that is just not there in the music business. Right. OK, which it was in the days of the 60s, 70s and 80s.
1: So not only was it sexy, but it you could make a living.
0: That's it. why yeah. a lot of people, you know, they still want to. That's why well, they still want to go right. into the music. So business. there could be change.
1: So, uh, you know, as we, we we've. Brought up a couple of times, you know the uh, the crash, uh, the uh, uh, canary in the coal mine, uh, the record industries, Napster, two thousand, and uh, you know your newsletter is much more widely read. You're starting to um, uh, to offer advice to unknowns uh, directly from the newsletter. Right. So you know how how do you think that's gone? I mean, now you've been doing that for. 20 years, right?
0: Well, yeah, but, you know, there's, I mean, if you're talking about the specific questions you had, as opposed to the broad things, in terms of giving people advice, um, you know, I always remember Bob Dylan saying, don't listen to me, I'm just another guy, what do I know? And uh, at first you said, no, it's Bob Dylan, but I understand that position. And I also quote this song, Lighthouse, off the album Gorilla by James Taylor. Just because I might be standing here that don't mean I won't be wrong this time. You could follow me and lose your mind. <laughs> but I also want to be the antidote to a lot of crap. I mean, if you play your music, if you can get it heard by a professional in this business, they're never going to tell you it sucks. Yeah. Okay? So, yeah, you had a question? Well,
1: just, uh, you know, you, you are a truth teller. You you have no change. You right. well, uh, you are completely ever... away from any, beholden to anybody.
0: Right. People know what the truth is. It resonates. Yeah, yeah. And they're sick of being fed bullshit.
1: Well, they can find it on their little device in five minutes, uh, whether something but is even true emo- or even not. But even
0: emotional truth, yeah, okay? Yeah. People know, and it resonates. So that's that's my identity. You know, if you take the money, yeah, you're at this point, people don't offer me a lot of things because they know that I won't take them. I won't play the game. But... If you do take something, you're owed a... People don't understand it's a relationship favor business. Someone does a favor for you, you owe a favor. That's right. And you're part of the maelstrom immediately.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. So um, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, uh, the uh, the blacky lawless situation. Okay, but before, before
0: we go back there, because I don't think I fully answered your question about going to the internet. Yes, please. Um, two things. Yes, a lot more opportunities come up. Okay, like uh, I was in India a month ago. I... Um, That was a paying gig. I'm going to Dublin to interview Bob Geldof. That's a paying gig. I'm going to go to Iceland. That's a paying gig. Because my newsletter is free, I reach all these people. It's global. Okay? Right. And so people have talked about, this isn't a big discussion at this point, but, you know, giving it away for free. I've done much better by, doing it, so. by right. giving it away for free. And the turning, there were numerous turning points. First, I was the expert on Napster because I'm going to be an attorney. I can, you know, see the issues. Uh-huh. And hearing from everybody, Hillary Rose and head of RIAA, that was fascinating. And then going to England with Tony Wilson, King of Manchester, 2004 mm. the first time, that was great. So there are these significant things that happen. So anyway, you were talking about back to Blackley lawless, et cetera.
1: Well, my, my point is, is that, uh, you know, by being a truth teller, uh, you have famously, you know, Laid it out as you see fit, and that's you've got. That's why I lost.
0: That's why I lost my
1: gig, and that's why you lost your your job. But which then led to the newsletter, and then you know you've also got into some pretty public feuds. And I don't want to get into all of them, like get Gene Simmons, or want. that. No, there's one that I think is really special. Okay, and that is, uh, you know, I think you're the only uh, curmudgeonly critic to get a top ten hit written about them.
0: Okay, Taylor Swift wrote a song about me. This is. You know, I I really, I've been. You know, I said I wouldn't talk about it anymore just because everyone asked me about it very quickly. I was a fan, she was a teenage Joni Mitchell, yeah, singing yeah. about her emotions. I went to see her, she was authentic when she started. Yes, I went no to see her at the uh, at Staples Center, it was an unbelievable experience. I was the first person from who was not from country who was into it when you were into something believe me you hear from everybody involved hear from her father hear from her etc but i was constantly hearing that she could not sing Mm -hmm. and i was not going to write that without demonstration everyone knows that uh she appeared on the grammy she did a duet with stevie Nicks. That was could be the most horrific singing performance in the history of the Grammys, and I wrote that. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately, she wrote a song about me. Um, that's kind of what happened.
1: Yeah, called Mean. Uh, called Mean. If you you know, if, it, it's a it's a Grammy winning song. <laughs> uh, I think <laughs> if Rolling a Grammys,
0: if a Grammy means anything, Ro-
1: Rolling Stone calls it uh, uh, ranks it number twenty four on the all time country list. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, it's you know, I stopped commenting for a couple of years until John Mayer. uh, She wrote, "Dear John," about John Mayer, and he said, "You know that he was humiliated, et cetera, et cetera." And um, at this point in time, she that was the third album. She's changed direction. She's going pop, Mm -hmm. and I think she's written her history such that people can judge who they think she is. Mm -hmm. She has hardcore fans, everybody, but uh, I don't think my judgment needs to be added in. Everybody else has their own judgment.
1: Uh, It was for a moment, and, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe you spurred her on to uh, improve her vocal qualities.
0: I think that's something that's uh, inbred, you're born with, but, uh, you know, I don't have a further answer. (laughs) All right, so why have you never written a book? Okay, generally speaking, a book is either fiction, which all the big agents want primarily, they don't want nonfiction, or an idea. I have a friend, Roger McNamee, he just wrote a big book. He's one of the original investors in Facebook, and he's been a very vocal critic of Facebook and how it was manipulated, etc. He's, he's now written a book. He emails me in August saying his book is coming out in February. February's too late! Okay, I'm reaching people every day. people write these books they get a big advance and they sell ten thousand copies if I sold ten th- if I reached ten thousand copies I'd shoot myself I'd give up you know yeah, yeah, you know yeah. so this is this is New York media they have it totally wrong okay the book is you write a novel fantastic okay but you're writing these books i'm i re i reach Light years more people than anybody who writes any of these books. Why would I want to slow myself down, take myself out of the daily maelstrom to play a game that is irrelevant? Some people say, "Well, it's a badge of honor." You say, "You have my book." You know, I'm not a game player. I'd rather write every day. Okay,
1: so we've talked about uh, the music industry, little technology, little politics. Um, so let's talk about today, Mr. Guru. Okay. Uh, it appears the music industry is back in good health. Well the record uh, but there no, are no, no, challenges.
0: let's be very clear. The recorded music industry, which is just part, is rebounding. Live has been skyrocketing for thirty years.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, and isn't that really the what we want from music is the live experience isn't really the record and, and back in the day let's face it the tour you know supported the, the recording and the recording was where the money was and that has uh, you know shifted 180 degrees and you know but the fact is is if you can go out there on the road and put a quality show out for the audience you can actually make
0: a pretty good living we got a lot of things going there you know after the second album Steely Dan stopped going on the road mm-hmm. And their records only became more and more successful. And I love listening to those records. Mm -hmm. I love going to see Steely Dan, especially when they were with the Universal Amphitheater, and play those records live. I believe they're two different experiences. There are certain acts, you know, Grateful Dead being legendary, where the live experience was radically different from the record. Mm -hmm. Okay? Mm -hmm. But I'm one of those people who views the live experience as being religious experience. Although I like going to the festivals, et cetera. I like going to the, and I remember when they still had chairs in these venues, and sitting and bonding with the music. Going and hanging with the people is is a separate thing. I recognize that. That is not necessarily what appeals to me. So for me, both things appeal. I don't believe live eclipses, and we go further down the rabbit hole from there. So, uh,
1: okay, so what I hear is is that they are two completely different things. Well, they're both music. And they intersect. Yes. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you get a, a certain level of emotional joy uh, uh, in one way and you experience it in a different yes. way in between the live and recording.
0: Yes, there's so. nothing better than going to a gig and the band plays the album cut that was never on the radio yeah. that you loved and you just and you just can't believe it. You're, you're warm all over.
1: Yeah, it's like a religious experience. Right. It definitely is. Uh, um, so uh, you, you have an interesting take on today's ticketing uh, system and how you think it might be better served uh, for
0: the audience. Well, I've written a lot about it. You. You'll have to illuminate exactly what the question is. Well,
1: know. just that uh, that the the way that uh, the, the ticketing services are done today is uh,
0: but most poorly run. Don't, most people don't understand ticketing. It's very opaque, It's one of the few areas with subterfuge today. Still, still today, yeah. Well, people, let's start at the end. When you see the ad in the paper that the show is on sale at the arena, let's just call it 20,000 seats, although that's a big arena. There could be, in many cases, fewer than 1,000 seats available. So the audience is very sophisticated. They know if they want to go to the show they want to go to, they'll either have to join the fan club, get an Amex or a Chase card, buy from a scalper, go to StubHub, etc. On some level, options are better th- than ever because it used to be you, if you didn't get the seats the, the, at the lineup, yeah. you couldn't go. Right. But um, it needs to be more clear, and it's not going in that direction.
1: Do you think that uh, that will happen? Do you think that that's a supply and demand issue, that uh, uh, the public will demand that? The players
0: involved like it this way. They do. And until there's an incentive for them to change it, Mm -hmm. there will be no change. Mm -hmm. Ticketmaster is paid by the Axe to take heat. Everybody hates Ticketmaster. They love the Axe. That's another reason why the Axe won't charge what the uh, real price of the ticket is. They're afraid of bad reflection. So if you have a ticket fee, okay, the reason there are fees is because essentially all of the ticket revenue other than the fee goes to the act. All right,
1: all right. Um, okay, so uh, let's talk about uh, Bob Leftsets today. Uh, you know, uh, the backbone is the Leftsets letter. Absolutely. Uh, you have a podcast yes. uh, on TuneIn.
0: Let's, we're switching distributors, but was on TuneIn and going to a new one.
1: Oh, okay. And then uh, you now have a show on Sirius XM.
0: I certainly do. Mm-hmm.
1: Now uh, uh, and that's a live show, right? Uh, a call Usually show.
0: usually live.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you've only had a couple. I think this it's is started, really we,
0: As we do this I've done
1: three done three so how's it going so far
0: you know i love doing radio i used to have a show on klsx every sunday night here in los angeles till it flipped format uh it's great what's to complain about
1: <laughs> what do you think of uh of uh, X and buying pandora
0: you know this is a very i think they had a huge investment in pandora mm-hmm. and it can only be advantageous to them to what degree uh they utilize it we'll have to see
1: all right. And then uh, finally, you're uh, about ready to head out on tour. Yes. Tell us about that.
0: Uh, it's like I think of the Depeche Mode song of <laughs> Route 66. Don't forget the, uh, Tacoma, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But uh, this was Jason Flom's idea. For those people who don't know Jason Flom, the most successful AR guy working in the business mm-hmm. today. Yeah. Uh he made everybody from Lord to Katy Perry to Kid mm-hmm. Rock. It goes on and fleet for us Um, and I had him on my podcast back in February, and he said he got more feedback doing my podcast than he had doing anything else. So uh he then said, Why don't we go on the road? And since Jason is so successful, I said yes. That was like 11 o'clock at night in Toronto. I wake up the next day, he's already got an agent, he's got it all planned out. Mark Geiger, WME, who runs WME, that's the merger of William Morris and Endeavor. Uh, He is the agent. We're starting in uh, Boston, going to Toronto, then Brooklyn, then Manhattan, then Los Angeles, then San Francisco. Tickets are very inexpensive, $20 to $35. There are fees on top of that. We don't get the fees. We might not even make any money at all. This is an experiment to check demand. If you want to see us ever again, you better come. Right. And he'll be interviewing me. Uh, I'll be interviewing him. And people will be able to get questions up close and personal. So uh, should be fun. You know, first date is in Boston. Uh in you know middle of October, go to leftsetsversusflam dot com, and uh, you can uh, see all the dates. Get
1: all right. Tickets. Last question. So uh, let me finish by putting uh, your art history cap on. Oh Jesus! Yeah. Uh, where does rock and roll, and I, and I mean you know the music that drove the culture, fit in the pantheon of art movements in history?
0: I believe that music is the most medium most immediate medium okay yeah let's go back to um
1: instantaneous satisfaction
0: the number one thing is sex people say you know uh nothing can compete with sex you know if some nerd is playing video games and someone says you want to have sex they say i'm gonna, not gonna say no i'm going to play video games music when done right okay when Kirk Cobain offed himself. Andy Rooney was on 60 Minutes saying what a waste it was. And the next day I was on the phone with Eddie Rosenblatt, who was head of Geffen Records. And uh, uh, Nirvana was on DGC, which was a part of Geffen Records. And we are talking about how terrible it was, what Andy Rooney had done. And Eddie said, and I've given him credit all the time, he said, movies when done right are larger than life. Music when done right is life itself. Ah. You listen to Joni Mitchell records, even ACDC records, you say, that's them. Yeah. That's one of the bad things, the Mariah Carey era, although she wrote some of her songs supposedly, people think it's about melisma, et cetera. We've lost touch. We're far from the garden of the person singing their own song. Mm-hmm. It's like when you have 18 people it's making producers a Producers write. and that's, writers. And- that's, that's why I love yeah. those initial you know Taylor Swift records. Yeah. Uh, they were co-written with Liz Rose, but... They were literally her emotions. Yeah. So music touches you in a way. It's not only the lyrics. It moves your body. I mean, no one says, oh, we're going to have sex. Let's turn on the TV. Let's say, let's put on some music. Music is the mood. So inter- I put music at the peak, and I would put painting and sculpture and television and movies beneath music. That doesn't mean music doesn't wax and wane in importance and execution. But I believe music is the number one art form.
1: Bob Lefsitz, thanks so much for being with us Great today. Great to be here. On listen, you're a very
0: informed, erudite nice guy.
1: Nice. Thank you, Bob Lefsetz. Funny and pointed stuff there. And it was a gas to talk with someone who shares our passion for the real deal, the genuine article for authentic rock and roll. Like we said at the top, Bob's online blog is a regular stop for us, and we highly recommend it. It's spelled L-E-F-S-E-T-Z, so Lefsetz.com slash WordPress. Go check it out right now, and you can thank us later. Bob can also be found live on the XM Sirius Satellite Radio, the volume channel 106 on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern and 4 p.m. Pacific. Finally, Bob and his dear friend, record exec, talent scout extraordinaire, and philanthropist Jason Flom are out on a no-holds-barred tour. Uh, Check local listings or the show notes to see when they are coming to your town. But if you want to see them and catch some of the RRA team, I can tell you we will be catching them October 30th at the Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. Thanks again to Bob Lefsetz, and thank you for stopping by and popping in those earbuds. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of Rock and Roll Archaeology. Peace out, and as always, keep up the rockin'. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information.